You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Man, I am so grateful uh, for the opportunity to be up here opening up God's Word with y'all this morning. Super grateful to uh, Pastor Josh for sharing this platform with me. But I do just want to let y'all know uh, right up front that, uh, man, I'm just a broken, messed up vessel that for whatever reason God has chosen to communicate His Word through this morning. And I know that uh, every time I get up here, a lot of you guys are like, ah, oh, Brandon's preaching. I don't like Brandon. Listen, I don't like Brandon either, okay? We got something in common. Brandon's a mess. He's a mess. There's nothing that qualifies me in any way to stand up here except for the perfect and powerful Holy Spirit of God that's living in me. And so just so you know, I've been praying like crazy uh, that he does the speaking today and not me because I've got nothing for you, but God has everything for you. He's got life change for you. He's got eternity change for you, I promise. So we're in a series uh, where we're leading, reading through uh, and learning from a book of the Bible called Acts. And this is such a cool book of the Bible. Bible uh, because it tells us the story of how the church started. Like, have you ever wondered how how did 12 best buddies, 12 disciples of this small town Jewish construction worker on the other side of planet Earth in a country smaller than the state of Texas, how do they take their faith and turn it into a worldwide global phenomenon that we now call the church? How did that happen? The book of Acts tells us how that happened. It tells us how God built his church and started reaching the world through his church. And today, Uh, We're at the point in the story where we're going to be talking about one of the biggest villains of the story, a guy named Saul. So God was using the disciples to build the church up. This guy, Saul, was trying to tear it down. Uh, My daughter has these building blocks that she likes to play with. They're like giant Legos. And the other day, she was on the floor playing with her Legos, and she was looking at me, and I could tell she wanted me to get on the floor and play with her, but I didn't really feel like getting on the floor and playing with her. But every time I don't feel like playing with my kids, I always think of that stupid uh, Trace Atkins song, you know, you're going to miss this. You're going to want this back. You're going to wish these days. I'm like, dang it, Trace Atkins. So I get on the floor, and I start playing blocks with my daughter. But I'll just be honest with y'all, after a while, uh, it's not really about her anymore. I kind of forgot she was there, to be honest, right? I'm into it now. Like, I'm building this super awesome battleship thing, uh, and I spent so much time building this battleship up. And then then my daughter comes up to me, grabs my battleship, and with a smile on her face, starts tearing it apart block by block. And I got way too mad at someone who wears size four diapers that day, okay? Way too mad. But that's what Saul's doing. That's what Saul's doing. God was using the apostles to build his awesome church, and this guy Saul uh, comes out of nowhere and starts trying to tear it apart block by block, and he's doing it with a smile on his face. This guy Saul, if you've been here for the series that we've been in, you, you, you're familiar with the name Saul. He's popped up a couple times in our series. The first time we met Saul was actually a few weeks ago when there was this guy, this Christian uh, named Stephen, who was a follower of Jesus, but he was being brutally murdered by the religious people of that day, who, by the way, were the bad guys in the New Testament of the Bible. And scripture basically says that Saul, this guy Saul, was standing there as smiling and nodding in approval as this Christian named Stephen is being brutally murdered right in front of him. It says he was in complete and total agreement of this murder. And then, if you remember, Saul popped up again in Acts chapter 8, verse 3. I think we actually have that one on the screen. Uh, It said, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. 
He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. So, so far, all that we know about Saul is that he's the villain. He's the bad guy. Saul is hunting down Christians, tearing families apart, dragging fathers and mothers from their children, arresting them. He's even playing a big part in the murder of Christians. I need us to understand how much of a villain this guy Saul is. So I was thinking about some uh, famous bad guys this week. These are people who are known for how bad they are. I think we have one picture and pull it up. Darth Vader, right? He's known for how bad he is. Uh, Do we have another picture? The Joker. Yeah, my, my favorite villain of all time. You know, the Joker from the Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah, do we have another one? The Wicked Witch, she's known for how bad she is, of course. This one is, uh, hopefully you guys know this one. Pull that next one up. Lotso from Toy Story 3. Shocker, plot twist. Didn't see that one coming. Uh, These are bad guys that are known for how bad they are. Do we have another one? Oh, shoot. That's a different kind of bad. Sorry. Come on. Y'all had to know that was coming. Anyway, in the eyes of Christians, in the eyes of Christians in that day, Saul would have been just as much of a villain as any of those uh, villains were in their movies. But unfortunately, this guy Saul, he's, he's, he's not a fictional character. He's very real, very real. Uh, think about Saul as a Nazi and Christians as Jews in the 1940s. I mean, that's Saul. He is evil. He hated Christians. And every Christian at the time knew the name Saul. He is the villain. He's the bad guy. But here's the thing about Saul. Saul didn't think he was the bad guy. Saul didn't think he was a bad guy. Well, my daughter was tearing apart my awesome battleship. She didn't think she was doing anything wrong. When Saul was tearing apart the church, he didn't think he was doing anything wrong. Saul didn't think he was the villain. The Joker, he knew he was the bad guy. Darth Vader, he knew he was on the dark side. He knew he was the bad guy. But Saul thought he was the good guy. And Saul thought Jesus and Jesus' followers were the villains. Saul actually thought he was doing God's work by tearing down the church of Jesus Christ. And this may be a little confusing, so let me tell you a little bit about Saul to help you understand him a little bit better so you can see where he's coming from from. Saul was probably from a big, super wealthy city called Tarsus. Think like Nashville or Atlanta. So Saul was a city boy, probably had super wealthy parents. Uh, Saul's dad was probably a Pharisee. Scripture says that Saul came from a family of Pharisees. And Pharisees, if you don't know, were basically just very wealthy, very educated uh, religious leaders. So Saul was very educated. Saul probably had the whole Old Testament of the Bible memorized by heart because that was a level of education that was expected for Pharisees. Uh, And we don't know this for sure, but Paul may have even seen Jesus crucified because as a Pharisee, Saul would have been at uh, at the Passover celebration in town, which is when Jesus was killed. So he definitely, though, knew about Jesus. He definitely hated Jesus, and he was definitely glad to see Jesus crucified. Hated Jesus, hates his followers. Like, listen to what the first verse of our passage says. Uh, And by the way, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Uh, And if that sounds like a, a lot of verses, don't worry, I talk about five times faster than the average person. Okay, so we'll fly through this. But Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every single breath. Uttering threats with every breath. And listen to this. He was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Uttering threats with every breath, eager to kill Christians. That's how much hate was in this guy's heart towards Jesus and Jesus' followers. But why did Saul Saul hate Jesus so much? Why did Saul hate the church so much? Here's one big reason why. This is important. Because Saul had been studying, like I said, Saul had been studying the Old Testament his whole life. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's this talk of a Messiah that's going to come, God's anointed one, someone who's going to come save the Jews. And then Jesus came, and Jesus claimed to be that Messiah that the Old Testament talks about. And Jesus fulfilled all that prophecy about the Messiah that Saul knew by heart. 
But the problem was, and don't miss this, the problem was that even though Jesus fulfilled the prophecy about the Messiah, Jesus didn't fulfill this false idea about the Messiah that Saul had built up in his head and that all the religious people had built up in their heads at the time. Saul thought the Messiah was coming as a military leader that was going to wipe out all of the Jews' enemies. But Jesus comes and says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Saul thought the Messiah was going to come save the Jews from their physical enemy at the time, which was Rome, the nation of Rome. But Jesus came to save them from their real enemy, their spiritual enemy, sin, the devil, and death. Saul thought the Messiah was coming to take lives, but instead Jesus comes to lay down his life. So even though Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah that Saul studied his whole life, Saul couldn't accept Jesus as the Messiah because Jesus didn't fit Saul's ideas of what the Messiah should look like. And this is a really, really easy trap for any of us to fall into, y'all. We got to be so careful, especially today, that we don't let our traditions and our desires and our culture and our ideas and what we want and our preferences. We got to be real careful that we don't let those things shape scripture. Instead, we've got to let scripture shape our ideas and we got to let scripture shape our culture and let scripture shape what we want and our preferences and our desires because we are not the authority, y'all. God and through his word is the authority. So Saul thought, man, there's no way Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is a heretic and God would want me to kill all these heretics that are following him. So Saul thought he was doing God's work. Here's another fun fact about Saul. Saul came from one of those families who only named their kids after people in the Bible. So like those super Christian families, y'all know them. Like, hey, this is my boys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and oh, there's John around the corner there. Or uh, my wife's pregnant with twins, Jacob and Esau, you know, or Noah and Moses or something. And look, if that's you, I got no room to judge. I name my kids after plants and animals, okay? So I'm not judging you. I'm just saying Saul came from one of those families. Saul was named after King Saul from the Old Testament, who ironically was a villain in the Old Testament. There's actually a ton of similarities between New Testament Saul, who we're talking about this morning, and the guy that he's named after. If you don't know, in the Old Testament, there's a king of Israel named King Saul. Uh, King Saul started off as a good king who loved God, but eventually he turned into a really bad king. So what God did was God said, I'm not, I'm going to anoint a new king, raise up a new king to take your place, a guy named David, as in David and Goliath. But King Saul hated David because King Saul couldn't accept that God chose David to be king. King Saul couldn't accept the fact that David was God's anointed one. So King Saul hated David, hunted David down, persecuted David, tried to stop David, tried to kill David. Now, this is interesting because David's great, 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 great grandson is Jesus Christ. Jesus came from the line of David. So now here in the New Testament, all these years later, New Testament Saul is doing exactly what the guy he's named after, Old Testament King Saul, was doing. New Testament Saul couldn't accept that Jesus was God's Messiah, God's anointed one, the true king. And here now, New Testament Saul is doing exactly what the guy he's named after did, hating Jesus, hunting down Christians, and persecuting Christians. The similarity are insane. It's almost like there's only one real enemy named Satan who's behind every evil and he has no new tricks. Uh, That's just a little Bible nerd uh, trivia facts for you real quick that he's named after King Saul. I thought that was interesting. But now let's get back into our passage. I want to read verse one and go to verse two. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and eager to kill the Lord's followers. So Saul went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way 
way, which was what they called Christians back then, that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So here's what happened. Saul gets a tip that there are some Christians hiding out in a city called Damascus. So he goes to his supervisors and he says, hey, can I have permission to go into Damascus and to arrest these Christians and maybe even kill some of them? And they're like, yeah, you can do that. So Saul saddles up his, his donkey and he rides out to Damascus with a team of guys to basically go Christian hunting. Now, I want to stop here for a second. I was thinking this week, I was thinking about the, the, the Christians. I was thinking about the Christians that Saul was hunting down this week, the Christians in Damascus, because these were real Christians, like real Christians. These weren't fake Christians that Saul was hunting down. These weren't Bible Belt Christians. These weren't, I'll go to church on Sunday, but I'll live my life however I want to the rest of the week kind of Christians. No, no, these were real Christians that Saul was after. These were people who were willing to uproot their entire lives, go into hiding, go to prison, lose their reputation, lose their popularity, give up up all their plans for their life, give up everything they have, and even die for Jesus. They were literally hiding for their lives because people like Saul were hunting them down. These Christians were. They didn't have to, by the way. They could have renounced Jesus and went back to their everyday lives, but they loved Jesus. They knew that he was the way, that he was the truth. They knew that he really was the Messiah. We're talking about real Christians here. So because these were real Christians, they would have been in serious prayer because that's what real Christians do if you don't know. They pray. They seriously pray. They would have even been praying for Saul, praying for their enemy because that's what real Christians do. That's what Jesus said to do. Real Christians pray for their enemies. Not only did Jesus say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Jesus also said once, you have to forgive in your heart in order for your prayers to be answered. Mark eleven twenty five 25 says, but when you are praying first, first forgive anyone that you're holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. So I think the Christians in Damascus knew this and they were on their knees praying for Saul and even forgiving Saul, praying that Saul would have his eyes open, praying that Saul would meet Jesus. I think they were praying for Saul as he was coming to kill them and kill their families. And I think this should be a lesson for us, an encouragement for us to never stop forgiving people and to never stop praying for people, even people that we think are way too far gone because I think God answered the prayers of these Christians who were praying for Saul. Look what happens in in verse 3. As Saul was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice voice saying uh, to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. I played uh, soccer in middle school. Uh, don't judge me. This is before I met Jesus, but I did play it. And I remember my very first soccer game. I got the ball, and I, and I was running down the field, and I was so fast that none of the other team was even on the same side of the field as me. And I, and I got to the goal, and I was so focused on kicking the ball straight into the goal that I wasn't even paying attention to the goalie, but I could see out of my peripheral, if that's how you say it, that he was just standing still, probably shocked by my skills and my, and my speed. And I kicked the ball as hard as I could. It goes into the goal, and I start celebrating like, woo, yeah, let's go, right? And then everybody, a bunch of people starts, you know, celebrating around me. But I look around. And I realized that it's only the other team that's celebrating for me. And I thought, hmm, that, that's kind of weird, you know? And, you know, I thought my coach would be super proud of me, like, you know, add a boy, good job. But when I looked to the sidelines, he was furious at me because, as you guys can probably guess, I kicked the ball into the wrong goal. Saul was kicking the soccer ball in the wrong goal. And just like me, he was so proud of himself. He thought he was doing God's work. He was patting himself on the back. Yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. Saul thought God was so proud of him. But right now, Saul is finding out that he kicked the ball in the wrong goal, and God, the coach, was actually furious at him, not proud of him. Paul thought he was doing things the right way. 
his whole life. Paul thought he was the good guy, and he thought Jesus was the villain. But now in this moment, Saul is for the first time coming face to face with the reality that he is the villain. He's the villain, and Jesus is the good guy. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah, and Saul is the villain. And by the way, this is the first step of salvation coming face to face with the reality that you're the villain, that you've sinned against a holy, righteous, perfect creator of the universe, God. Coming face to face with the reality that you're the bad guy, that you're a sinner, and that you deserve nothing but eternal separation from God for your sin against him. But for some reason, God loves you so much. I don't know why. I don't know why he loves me this much, but for some reason, God loves us so much. He literally sent his only son to become a perfect sacrifice for your sin, to die on a cross, to make you right with God, to make you, sinner, right with a perfect God despite your sin. Coming face to face with the reality, y'all, that Jesus literally died for your sins and three days later literally rose back to life, defeating death for you. Coming face to face with the reality that he is alive today and wants a relationship with you right now. Coming face to face with the reality that if you put your faith in Jesus, you don't have to get what you deserve, what we all deserve, which is hell, but instead you can get what only he deserves, what only Jesus deserves, and that's eternal life in a perfect earth with a perfect body in heaven forever. Coming to that realization and putting your faith in that truth, that is how you are saved from your sins against God. And then Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And this is big. Jesus didn't say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my followers? He didn't say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my church? He, Jesus said, Saul, why do you persecute me? And, 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 the, and why Jesus is saying this is, is very simple. It's because what you do to people in the church, you're really doing to Jesus. And what you do for people in the church of Jesus you're really doing for Jesus. So I don't know if you guys know this, but um, one day, whether you believe it or not, I promise this is true, and I'd rather you realize this now than later, but you, one day, everyone in this room is literally going to stand before the creator of the universe. Like, you're going to stand before him and give an account for your life. And Jesus, one day, is talking about this moment, this day. And uh, he's, he's describing it to people, and he says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to come back. I'm going to gather everybody who's ever lived before me, and I'm going to separate them into two groups. And one group I'm going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. But the other group, I'm going to say, enter into heaven, enter into the kingdom I prepared for you. And, and, and listen, to what, listen to what Jesus says is going to happen. Then the King Jesus will say to those on his right, he will say to the real Christians, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. Why do we get to get into heaven? Here's why. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothes. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the righteous ones, then the Christians, then the Jesus followers who are getting into heaven will say, Lord, you know, we're super grateful and all, but, but when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality? Jesus, when did we see you naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? That's what us Christians will say to him on that day. And then King Jesus will say, I'll tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. So when you serve the least of people in your church, you're really serving Jesus, y'all. When you serve in Rev Kids with, with Jackie, our kids minister, you're serving Jesus. You know, Chosen Kids is coming up. And by the way, today is the last day to sign your kids up for that. You sign up so in the kids' lobby. But those leaders who are serving in Chosen Kids and those leaders who are watching your kids right now, they're really serving Jesus. 
when you serve in Rev students and you serve in, in, in high school uh, with high schoolers and you sit in the parking lot after a youth group for an hour counseling a high school girl through a breakup, you're really serving Jesus. When, when you serve that middle school boy and show love to that middle school boy who hasn't discovered deodorant yet, even though he should have a year ago, you're really serving Jesus. When you hold the doors open and greet people lovingly with a smile on your face on Sunday morning, y'all, you're holding the door for King Jesus. When you change slides so that the church can follow along with the worship and follow along in the message and, and you're serving your church that way, you're really serving Jesus. When someone in your church is in need and their car breaks down, you know how to fix cars. Uh, you fix it for them, free of charge. You're not just serving them, you're serving Jesus. When someone in your church loses their job or is going through a hard time or is facing something financially and you're blessed financially, you help them out. You help them out, you give to them. You're not Because you're not just serving them, you are serving Jesus. When you serve Jesus' people, you're serving Jesus. When you show love to people, you're showing love to Jesus. By the way, this also means that if you're not serving anybody, you're not serving Jesus at all. And if you're not loving anybody, you're not loving Jesus at all. And what you do to others, and that's why, by the way, there's none of this, I, I, I do my religion in the woods, or I, I'm with God in the, and, and when I'm out at the, on the water on my boat. There's none of that. That's not biblical at all. The way you serve Jesus, the way you show love to Jesus is by serving and loving his people. What you do to others, you're doing to Jesus. And in Saul's case, Saul was persecuting Jesus' people. So he was actually persecuting Jesus. I remember I was at this summer camp. I used to love going to this summer camp every year when I was in high school. And uh, every uh, at the end of every week of the summer, uh, we would have these epic pillow fights. And I'm not talking about these cute little fluffy pillow fights, y'all. I'm talking about like kids got concussions and broken nose from these pillow fights, okay? And the key, by the way, is to take your pillow and, and to stuff the pillow as tight as you can at the bottom and then twist it up so it's like a freaking rock when you hit somebody with it. And uh, we were all fired up this one year. I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, it was the year that the movie 300 came out, so we were all fired up, kicking doors down. This is Sparta, you know what I mean? And uh, I, know I had my team get ready to go into the last cabin. There was one more cabin left to go into, to bust into, and to start a pillow fight with, and I had my team ready. We were at the door, and as a leader, I took the pillow, and I said, I'm going to, I'll break in. I'll start this thing. And so I go to the cabin door. I knock on it, and I'm ready to just nail whoever opens that door. And as soon as they open the door, I do it, man. I swing as hard as I can with my pillow, and I nail this person right in the face. But when I look up, I see that it's not a camper. It's actually a counselor who didn't go to the meeting. And this is not just any counselor. This is a guy named Mr. Trent, who, by the way, is the scariest man I've ever met in my entire life. He's like on, he's like on the SWAT team. I'm pretty sure he killed people for a living. And I remember thinking... Lord, if you're coming back, please come right now. This will be a great time. No, no time like right now. But he didn't, and I got in a lot of trouble. I thought I was hitting a camper, but I was really hitting a counselor. Saul thought he was hitting a camper, but he was really hitting a counselor. Saul thought he was simply hitting followers of Jesus, but he was hitting Jesus himself because what you do to people, you do to Jesus. And what you do for people, you do for Jesus. So here's what happens next, verse 6. Uh, now get up and go into the city. Jesus tells Saul, and you'll be told what to do. The men with Saul, because by the way, Saul, remember, Saul had men with him, uh, stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Now, I want to pause here really quick, because I've been curious my whole life uh, about these men who were with Saul. Like, did they get saved that day? Did they put their faith in Jesus that day? See, they didn't have this big, crazy, personal experience like Saul did. They just simply work, witnessed Jesus working. And every day, I think there's people who come to faith in Jesus, not in some big, dramatic, personal way like Saul, 
They just simply witnessed Jesus working. Like maybe they saw a change in someone else. Maybe Jesus spoke to them through someone else or through something else. Maybe it was a sermon they heard, whatever. And these testimonies aren't big and dramatic and crazy like Saul's, but they're still testimonies of salvation. And I don't know if any of those guys who were with Saul put their faith in Jesus that day, but I just wanted to pause and say that if they did, even though it wasn't their personal big moment like Paul had, their testimony is just as powerful and just as beautiful as Saul's testimony, y'all. Saul's testimony is awesome. You know, he goes from uh, Christian killer to Jesus follower. And there are so many people who have uh, come to Jesus and have these awesome tel- testimonies that we celebrate. Like, man, I was addicted to crack, you know. I was a drug dealer. I went to prison. I shanked somebody in there, murdered somebody, and then I met Jesus. And we celebrate these Damascus Road Saul-type testimonies. But listen to me, y'all. It's okay if that's not your story. It's okay. I think the coolest testimonies are actually testimonies that are like, man, Jesus just spoke to me and I put my faith in Jesus and I've been following him ever since. Or the coolest testimonies are when people say, man, I followed Jesus when I was young and I've been following him ever since. You know, I think those are the coolest because the devil even never even stood a chance with you. The devil never even stood a chance with your life and with your soul. I wish that was my testimony. I love those testimonies. And I just wanted to say that before we move on because when so many people read this story, they start to think that we're some how less of a Christian if we don't have this big moment like Saul had, but that's not true. Anyway, let's keep reading. Uh, verse 8, Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. He couldn't see. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days uh, and did not eat or drink. Saul had been, y'all, spiritually blind. He had been spiritually blind for so long. He memorized the whole Old Testament, but he was completely blind to Jesus Christ, who the whole Old Testament points directly to. And now he's physically blind. But y'all, this is so important. Even though Saul is physically blind, he's seeing things more clearly than he ever, ever has. Uh, Our spiritual condition, y'all, is way more important than our physical condition. Our spiritual condition is way more important than our physical condition. So as Christians, we can't get so caught up on what we don't have physically that we forget what we do have spiritually, which is the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. Because when you put your faith in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit of God. So who cares if you can't afford that boat, you know? Who cares if you can't live in a house like you want, a house that's big like you want? Who cares if you don't have a lot of money in, in your bank account? We have the Holy Spirit of God, the great provider living inside of us. Who who cares if we're sick? Who cares if we're disabled? We have the Holy Spirit of God, the great physician living inside of us. And even if he doesn't heal us and we die, who cares if we die? We have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us who guides us to eternal life in a perfect world with a perfect body forever. Our spiritual condition is way more important than our physical condition. Saul was physically blind, but spiritually, he finally had sight to see the truth. And I think he would tell you right now, I'd much rather be spiritually have sight than than physically have sight. Let's keep reading verse 10. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. Now, the setting has changed here. We were focused on Saul lying blind in the middle of the road, but now the story shifts to Damascus, the place Saul was heading. Uh, and, we're, and we're in the house of a Jesus follower in Damascus named Ananias. Ananias was probably one of the leaders uh, in the secret church of Damascus. Uh, he was probably on Saul's hit list. Saul probably had a picture of him that said, most wanted in his pocket. This is Ananias. And it said, the Lord spoke to him in a vision calling, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas because Saul's friends took him to this guy Judas' house on a street called Straight Street. And God says, Ananias, when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Remember how I said Saul's name was known throughout the entire church because of how bad he was? Ananias already knew Saul's name. I think God just has a sense of humor and and was trying to be a little funny. It's funny because God's like, hey, 
Ananias, you know that murderer Saul, that Christian killer, that Hitler, that Darth Vader of the church? Yeah, well, I'm going to need you to go talk to him. I'm going to need you to go help him. And by the way, I told him your name. Oh, and I showed him what you look like in a vision. (laughs) Okay. And so Ananias is like, but Lord, but Lord, he says what we'd all say, what I'd say, but Lord, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Ananias is questioning God. Ananias is like, what do you want me to do? Are you serious? What are you doing? I don't understand you, God. And listen, I don't know if anyone's ever told you this, but it's okay to have questions. Y'all, it's okay to question God. It's okay to question God's plans. It's okay to question what you feel like God is calling you to do. It's okay to question God's word even. You know why? Because God can handle your questions. God welcomes your questions. He wants to give you clarity and comfort. When you have doubts, don't run away from God looking for answers. Run to God. That's what so many people do, especially today. When they have doubts about God's word and about God, they run away from God to find answers. Instead, let's run to the source of truth looking for answers. Run to his word looking for answers. Run to his people looking for answers because truth, real truth, and God's word is real truth. Truth never fears a challenge. God can handle your questions. He can handle your doubts, and he'll give you clarity and comfort if you seek him. God gave Ananias clarity and comfort. God's like, listen, Ananias, calm down. I know what I'm doing. Verse 15, but the Lord said, listen, just go. Why? Because Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. Man, I love that verse, y'all. I love that verse because if there's one thing that I've learned ever since I started following Jesus is that there's no such thing as too far gone. No such thing as too far gone. If there's one thing that this story about Saul teaches us is that there's no such thing as too far gone. It's almost like, y'all, the more sinful you are, the better. (laughs) Because the more sinful you are, the more glory God gets when he saves you. God loves to save sinners who think they're too far gone. And maybe you aren't a murderer like Saul, but you're in here and and you really struggle with lust, have a big lust problem. Uh, You have a porn addiction. You've been having sex with someone that you're not married to. Uh, You need to read about David. You need to read about this guy, David, who had a serious lust problem, who spied on naked women bathing, who slept with another man's wife, got her pregnant, and even had that woman's husband murdered to cover up his lust. But he repents from his sin, and God forgives him. And the Bible actually calls David a man after God's own heart. Maybe you're thinking, no, I'm not a murderer like Saul, but I've been divorced. I've had an affair. Well, you need to read the story about this woman, the Samaritan woman at the well who Jesus talks to one time, who had five husbands, five husbands, and who was shacking up with the sixth guy who she wasn't even married to, but Jesus still offered her forgiveness and eternal life. Or maybe you're thinking, no, I'm not a murderer like Saul, but I've stolen from people, I've cheated people, I've taken advantage of people. Well, you need to read about a couple guys in Scripture named Zacchaeus and Matthew who were wicked, wicked, evil tax collectors who stole from the poor people, their own, their own people who were poor, so that they could become rich. Yet Jesus eats dinner at Zacchaeus' house, he repents, he offers Zacchaeus forgiveness, and he lets Matthew become a disciple, and he lets Matthew write a whole book of the Bible. No, I'm not a murderer like Saul, but I'm an alcoholic. Well, you need to read about a guy named Noah who had a serious alcohol problem, but he was the one man in the entire earth whose family God chose to save from a global flood. God loves to save people who think they're too far gone, and he loves to offer freedom for people who think they're too far gone because God loves to show people that there is no such thing as too far gone. No one in this room this morning is more of a sinner than Saul, I promise you that, but God saved him, and God will save you too. The more sin you got, the better. Bring it on, y'all, because the more sin you got, the more glory God gets for saving you. 
Not only did God save Saul, God used Saul as his chosen instrument, like it just said, to plant a ton of churches. Saul actually went by two different names because it was common to go by two different names back then. You may have heard the name the Apostle Paul. Well, murderer Saul and Bible writing, church planning, uh, Gentile saving Apostle Paul are the same guy. The same guy. And we're going to see later in this series that God used Saul to disciple people to reach the Gentiles. Us non-Jews wouldn't even know about Jesus if God didn't use Saul to reach the Gentiles. God used Saul to write a ton of letters that we know now make up the New Testament. There is no such thing as too far gone. And I wish I could stop there and say, the end, and let's pray. That would be a super encouraging message, but I can't. There's more verses to read. I wish Pastor Josh would have said, Brandon, just preach the verse 15, and I'll cover 16, but he didn't. So i got to read verse 16. God says to Ananias, yeah, I'm going to save Saul, and I'm going to use Saul for incredible things. And, verse 16, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. There's a cost to following Jesus, y'all. Saul lost his friends. He lost his family members. He lost his community. People who used to love Saul now hated him and even wanted to kill him. You'll lose friends too if you start following Jesus. I got saved right before I got married. And my wedding picture looks nothing like I thought it would. The guys that I thought would be standing beside me in my wedding weren't even at my wedding. I lost friends. And, and I had to lose friends because I knew that I was weak. I knew I was weak. I knew that I wasn't strong enough to influence my friends, but I knew I was weak enough to be influenced by my friends. So I lost friends, and it wasn't fun. And you'll probably lose friends, too. Saul lost friends. Saul was also made fun of. He was rejected and despised by people he loved. He was persecuted. He was beat up. He was stoned half to death, had rocks thrown at his head until he half died. He was shipwrecked. He was arrested. He was put in prison multiple times, and ultimately he had his head cut off for following Jesus. He suffered for following Jesus, and you will too. In some way, shape, or form, you will suffer for following Jesus too. There's a cost to following Jesus. I'm not trying to sell y'all on following Jesus this morning. I'm trying to warn y'all about following Jesus this morning. Jesus said once that if you want to follow him, you got to carry your cross. And he wasn't talking about a cross necklace or a cross tattoo. He was talking about what the cross meant to the people he was talking to, which was a torture device, a torture device. But here's one of the many amazingly cool things about following Jesus. Whatever suffering you go through for following Jesus, listen to me, y'all, you won't trade it for the world. Think about those Christians in Damascus who could have at any moment said, I'm done with this Jesus following thing. I'm ready to have my old life back, and they didn't. They wouldn't trade their suffering for the world. You're not going to believe this until you experience it. But when you follow Jesus, you have way more hope and way more joy and way more passion and way more fulfillment in life, even in the suffering of following Jesus, than you would have living a cozy, comfortable, and safe life of not following Jesus. Because when you're following Jesus, y'all, even when you're suffering, You are doing what you were created to do. And there's nothing that can bring you more fulfillment and joy in life than that. Verse 17, I'm almost done. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, when Ananias says, Brother Saul, he's not doing some weird churchy greeting. Uh, He's literally saying, Saul, welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. You're my brother now, Saul. When you put your faith in Jesus, God adopts you as his child. You can be God's son this morning. You can be God's daughter this morning. And you become brothers and sisters of other children of God. We become family. Saul went from the guy who was trying to kill Ananias to Ananias' brother. Welcome to the family. I think about Kanye West, man. Y'all remember a couple years ago when Kanye West got saved and put out those gospel albums and stuff? And one of my biggest pet peeves when that happened was Christians, real followers of Jesus, would say the words, we'll see. We'll see about Kanye. We'll see what? 
Well, if he's going to be perfect, I can go ahead and tell you right now, spoiler alert, he's not going to be perfect. He's going to screw up a ton. In fact, though, I think Kanye wouldn't have screwed up near as much as he has since then if more Christians at the time would have said, welcome to the family rather than we'll see, right? Welcome to the family. Hey, can I get the band to, to come up here whenever you guys are able? Because I'm almost done, and there's uh, two more verses that I want to read. 18 says, instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight, and then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food, and he regained his strength. So that's the end of our passage in Acts today. But I do want to leave you with one last thing. Uh, I don't know if you noticed uh, in that book, uh, in that last verse of this book that we're in, uh, but Paul uh, didn't wait to be baptized. He had been fasting. He could have eaten or drank something when he regained his sight, but that's not the first thing he did. The first thing Paul did when he received his sight was get dunked. That's the first thing he did. Y'all, there is no such thing as waiting to be baptized in the Bible. No such thing at all. It's just not there. When people get saved, they immediately get baptized. This whole waiting thing is something we've made up. It's not biblical. It's wrong. The first thing you need to do when you receive your sight, the first thing you need to do when you receive your sight is to be baptized, to go before your, your new brothers and sisters, your brand new family and say, I'm in the family. I'm a child of God. Y'all, baptism is a, is a symbol of what happened to you. It's a symbol of when you were dead in your sin and Jesus rose you up from death to life, real life, abundant life. It's also a symbol of what's going to happen to you in the future. When you die, your body's going to go into ground. But as a Jesus follower, God is going to raise your body from the ground one day. It's also a symbol of what Jesus did for you. He died, went under. He literally died. And three days later, he literally came back to life, rose again to life, defeating death for you. That's what baptism is a symbol of. And it's so important. It's supposed to be the first thing you do when you receive your sight. So if you put your faith in Jesus this morning, you need to be baptized. If you put your faith in Jesus last year, you need to be baptized right now. Quit waiting. That's not biblical. Get baptized today. I'm telling you this as one of your pastors, you need to do it today. Or maybe you're like me and you got baptized as a kid because we're all, a lot of us come from the Bible Belt and that's what you do in the Bible Belt. You just get baptized as a kid, whether it means anything or not. You know, you weren't really following Jesus, but you got baptized. That was my story. And so a couple of years ago, I got baptized here in front of the church staff, like Pastor Josh was telling y'all last week. Me, Pastor Josh, Jeff all got baptized in front of the church staff because that's the story that we all had. And maybe that's you too. In fact, I'm willing to bet that it is. We need to do it for real today. For real today. Baptism is not a cute suggestion. It is a command, a clear command, a serious command. It's so serious that a lot of Christians think it's necessary in order for you to be saved. And, and, and I don't believe that at all, okay? I'm not saying that I believe that, but it's not like people who think that are crazy. It's not like they're absolutely nuts. I mean, the Bible talks about baptism in such a serious way that I can see how people think that. If you received your sight, if you've been saved by the blood of Jesus, you need to get up and be baptized now because the Bible takes it very, very seriously. Jesus takes it very, very seriously. We have baptism scheduled, y'all. Y'all, we have 25 baptisms scheduled today on Memorial Day weekend. 25! Man, I don't know. Not us. Just God is just doing incredible things. And we're just honored to be a part of it. 25 baptisms scheduled. And, uh, it's kind of crazy, but we're going to open up baptism for anyone too. 
We're going to do it this service and next service. Uh, so if that's your story, don't worry if you've signed up. If that's your story, uh, then when I pray, you need to line up over there on this side of the wall. Somebody will be there to help you. If you are scheduled to be baptized, you need to line up on that side. Someone will be there to help you. But listen, uh, quit waiting. Quit waiting. And we're not going to make it easy for you. Every other time we make it easy for you. But we just we don't have the time to make it easy for you. <laughs> so we're not going to make it easy for you. Come in what you're wearing. Come in what you got. Listen, I, I, we'll give you clothes when you leave, but if that's your biggest concern is I'm not going to have clothes or I'm going to get these clothes wet, then you don't really know what baptism means and it's not real for you. Maybe you shouldn't get baptized anyway. But if this is your next step and you know it is and you haven't, you've haven't, you been scheduled, you need to line up on that wall. If you have, line up on that wall. And listen, for the rest of us, we know, we know the drill. Y'all know the drill. When they, when they come up in that water, we're saying, welcome to the family. Not we'll see. Welcome to my family. Welcome to the family of God. And we're going to celebrate like crazy when they come up out of that water. Let me pray for y'all. Father, thank you so much for how good you are to us. Thank you so much for the life-changing lessons that we learned from, from your word. But my favorite lesson from this story of how you saved Saul is this, and that's that there is no such thing as too far gone. And God, if there's people who put their faith in you, and they need to make that next step, and they need to obey you and take the next step in baptism. God, I pray that you give them the courage to get up out of their seat and get dunked today to come in this water and say, I'm in the family. We love you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.